Psalms chapter 89. Psalms chapter 89. I'm going to read verses 6 to 8. Psalm 89 says, For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee? The title message this morning is, Our God is Without Compare. Our God is Without Compare. So let's pray and look at this. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to be assembled here and open your precious word. And Father, we thank you for the promises that you've given to us, that they are the very words of our living God. And Father, we thank you that we can have that assurance and that confidence as we read and study your word. And I pray that we'd uh, act upon it to claim your promises as our own and that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray for you to be glorified in your church this morning. Father, we pray that, again, if there's any in our midst who do not know the Lord as, as our Lord and Savior, I pray that today they would realize their need, put their faith and their trust on thee. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I mentioned I was going to do a series of messages on the doctrines of our church as taken from our Declaration of Faith in our Constitution. Almost every church has one of these. But speaking of God in our Declaration of Faith, it says this, We believe that God the Father is spiritual Father only to those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that He is perfect in holiness, infinite in wisdom and knowledge, omniscient, measureless in power, omnipotent, and universally present and concerned in all the affairs of men, omnipresent, that He is the object of our worship and praise, and that He demands and deserves our complete obedience. And so as we look at our text this morning of our God without compare, uh, you know, it's important that we know who God is. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy is understanding. And as you think about having knowledge of the holy, Daniel eleven thirty two says, and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. It's speaking about the Antichrist. He's going to corrupt by flatteries. But it says this. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And the word exploits is talking about heroic acts. Heroic deeds. You know, we read about them throughout the Bible. Men that knew God did heroic things. You think about the life of the Apostle Paul. You know, and Paul said this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So as we consider this morning our God that is without compare, I want to notice several things from this passage of Scripture. First of all, He is without compare in His person. 
uh, speaks of his essence, or the word essence means his nature or the qualities of God. He is without compare. There is no other like him. You know, we, we call him the triune God. You know, we speak of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Bible bears this truth out. And verse John 5, 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And we see this uh, brought out throughout the Scriptures, even in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And then verse 26 says, And God said, Let us... Us. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. God said, let us make man. He was talking about the, the Trinity was involved in the making of man. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And yet these three are one God. There's unity of essence. As somebody said there's unity of essence. There is one God, but there's a tri-unity of personality of the Godhead. There are three persons. God demonstrates himself in three persons. We see this again in the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he says, We're to baptize them in the name, singular, name, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Not the names of, but the name of. So he is the triune God. There's no other like that. No other like that. So he's, he's without compare. It, you know, God is a spirit. John 4, verse 24 you know, Jesus told the Samaritan woman that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And when, the fact that he is a spirit tells us, therefore, he's not limited or constrained in any way. He's not limited to time or space. You know, the song, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, talked about, you know, the strife will not be long. This day, the noise of battle. We, we are in a battle, spiritual warfare now. But, but one of these days, you know, and, it's gonna, and, and as far as God is concerned, it could be in a day. Because a day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You see, God isn't limited by time like we are, nor space. He's a spirit. He's omnipresent. That means that he's everywhere. All at the same time. In, John, in, in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, the psalmist said, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, and the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Whither shall I flee? You know, we've been reading Revelation and studying Revelation, and, and they're going to cry out, you know, for the, and they're going to run into the Daves and the Kens and, and try and hide from the face of the Lamb and the wrath, His wrath. But there's no weather to go 
to flee from God. Because God is not limited by time or space. He's omnipresent. This God that we, have, we serve, He's also a living God. He's a living God. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that He gave life to all His creation, to all His creatures. Psalm 36, 9 says, For with thee is the fountain of life. And in thy light shall we see light. He is the fountain of life. He's the source of life. Genesis 2, 7 says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. An eternal one. Job said in Job 33, 4, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. Jesus had often, you know, the Sadducees came to him one day and questioning him about the resurrection. And Jesus responded this way in Luke 20 and verse 38. He says, For God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live unto him. He's not the God of the dead. In Acts 17, when when Paul was at Athens, he said to them, Neither is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath in all things. We know that James tells us that every good thing and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. All things that we have come from him. He is the living God. He's not a dead God. He is alive. And you know, the interesting thing about his life, I was just reading this this morning, and, and, uh, and, and you know, this, this, this just came to my attention. He, he's a living God, and Psalm 65, 2 says, And thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. You see, he's a living God. He's not a, he's not a God of stone or wood that hath no life. He's a living God. But he's also, thinking about his person, he's a personal God. You know, the Islam worships a God who's far off. He's not personal. But you, know, you think about it, the religions of the world, their gods are not personal. You know, the Catholic God continues to change. Jehovah's Witness God continues to change. The Mormon's God continues to change. He's not a personal God. And our God is someone that's not afar off or aloof, a being that we cannot know. In fact, Proverbs 8.31 speaks of the Lord Jesus, says, Rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of man. In John's in 1 John chapter 1 verse 3, John was writing his epistle and this is you know this was the purpose of the son of God being manifested. He says that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and his son Jesus Christ. See God is a God that desires to have fellowship with us. He wants to have a relationship and continual fellowship. 
like a friend with a friend. In fact, Proverbs describes him as a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. You know, God seeks this fellowship. He, after Adam and Eve had sinned, he came into the garden seeking Adam and Eve. He says, where art thou, Adam? Where are you? Jesus told the Samaritan woman, the Father seeketh such to worship him. See, God is, desires to be personal with us. That was the purpose of the manifestation of God through his Son is so that you and I may have fellowship with him. And so, we see he is without compare in his person. Secondly, he is without compare in his power. If you notice verse 8 of our text, it says, O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee? Or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Who is a strong Lord? And the word, of course, the word Lord there, if you notice, is in all caps. It means it's referring to the name Jehovah or the I Am, the self-existent one. And it says, who is like unto thee? Uh, who is a strong Lord like unto thee? The word strong means mighty, firm, immutable. And, of course, that means he's unchanging. He, he is fixed. He isn't going to change. You know, I mentioned you know, the Catholic God's continually changing. Now they're, you know, accepting um, um, you know, different people in the priesthood, and, you know, and they make changes as history goes along, you know. They continually have. I remember Bill Barron saying one time, he was out in Kansas, and there's a seminary there Catholic seminary, and it's a very conservative Catholic seminary. You would think when you walk around town, uh, I think it's in Rossville, Rossville, Kansas, when you'd walk around town, you'll see people you dress, you'd think they were some sort of Mennonite or Amish ladies. And so, and that's, they're from this Catholic seminary. The, the women folk, that's how they dress. So it's a very, and, they, and they're, they're Latin, you know, they use Latin. It's very, they, they think the Pope, as we know him, is a liberal. But anyway, you know, and, and he met this guy in the restaurant there, and he began to talk to him. And he, and he said, he, sa- he asked him, why would I want your God? He said, your God's continually changing. And the guy, he couldn't deny it. He was a, he was a man studying for the priesthood. It really kind of shook him up. Because he realized, my God's constantly changing. You know, Bill Barron's knew this because he grew up Catholic. He, he was familiar with all this stuff. You see, our God, but our God is unchanging. He doesn't change. He is firm. He is strong, Lord. You know, uh, he has all power. Uh, Psalm 147, verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, O Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. If you notice in the, the following verses here, he, he, he describes some things that, that shows God's strength. Thou rulest the raging of the seas. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest him. 
them. You know, Jesus simply said to the raging sea, peace be still. And it was still. You know, he can make the waves stand and congeal them. Notice it says here, thou, thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. You know what I think that means? I never saw this before until last yesterday. I think that means when the waves rose up in the sea, God kept them right there. And the Bible tells us that they were a wall on each side as the children of Israel walked through the middle of the sea. He congealed them. Now, it can mean frozen or congealed. You know how milk, if you let it sit out, will spoil and it'll, it'll congeal, get like jelly? That's what the Bible uses that word congealed in Exodus. You see, he can make what's fluid rigid or solid. Verse 10, thou hast broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. Thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. You know, he can crush the mightiest of empires with his strong arm. Rahab here in this text is a metaphor referring to Egypt. Egypt stood in opposition to God's promises and his purpose for his people. And God brought Egypt low. He broke Egypt. He brought her low and she has never again been the dominant world power verse 11 you know he founded the earth and the heavens verse 11 the heavens are thine the earth also is thine as for the world and the fullness thereof thou hast founded them so he's found the, you know, the, when it refers to the fullness we're talking about everything in earth and heaven he's founded everything that it contains he's founded and he can do whatever he wants with it. We're going to read in Revelation chapter 8 and 9 tonight. That he's going to shake the stars. Which he founded. You know, Psalm 8 verse 3 says, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers. The heavens, the work of his fingers? You know, there's, they say... They say there's a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And I don't know how many galaxies there are. But according to UCSB science line, there are one billion trillion stars in observable space, if you can figure out how many that is. And consider, the psalmist said, consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained in order he set them in their place it's the work of his fingers to God you know that'd be like everyday occurrence you know just the work of his fingers he is able also his power he is able to subdue all power verse 13 says Thou hast a mighty arm, strong as thy hand, and high as thy right hand. The mighty arm refers to force, a mastery. You know, if, if, if he would be a person, he would be a master wrestler or a master warrior. He's of great power, of strength. 
He's mighty. The word strong means to prevailing. He's firm. Or we would say he's stout. You know, we would say about a young man maybe who's, who's really built. Well, well, he's well built. Or he's stout. Look at the guns on him, you know. But notice also the high right hand speaks of authority. He has authority above all authority. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, all power. And that word power there is the word for authority. There is no authority greater than the word of the living God. There's no authority greater. You see, our God is without compare in his power. In his person, but also in his perspective. You know, we're talking about the omniscient or the all-knowing God. Again, verse 13 says, Thou hast a mighty arm, strong is thy, right, thy hand, and high is thy right hand. And uh, I think I got the wrong verse here. Back in verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee? You know, his faithfulness is round about him, or you might say, we would say, it just surrounds him. It's who he is. Again, we're talking about the unchangeable, the all-knowing and unchangeable God. It's who he is. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. I change not. Psalm 102, verse 26 and 27 Again, the psalmist says, they, all, they shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou char- change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. You know, his, his strength is faithfulness. Our God does what he promises. You notice in verses uh, 35 through 37 of Psalm 89, he says, Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Selah. You know, and Solomon wrote then, speaking of this, in 1 Kings 8:56, Solomon said, Blessed be the Lord God that hath given rest unto his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. But you might say, but pastor, what about verses 38 through 45, where it says, but... Thou hast cast off and abhorred. Thou hast been wroth with thine anointed. He's talking about David and his seed. Thou hast made void the covenant of thy servant. Thou hast profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. Thou hast broken down all his hedges. Thou hast brought his strongholds to ruin. All that pass by the way spoil him. He is reproached to his neighbors. 
Thou hast set up the right hand of his adversaries. Thou hast made all his enemies to rejoice. Thou hast also turned the edge of his sword and hast not made him to stand in battle. In other words, when the children of Israel would fight, it's like they were using the flat side of their sword. They didn't know how to use it. And thou hast made his glory to cease and cast his throne down to the ground. So what happened? What happened to the promise of God? You might say. Is God not keeping his promises as David? You know, God also promised chastening of his people if they walk contrary to his word. And he did cast them off. But it's for a time. It's for a time. But one day, and you know, they had been cast off. They had been scattered from their homeland. And now they have returned, some of them. And they are a nation once again. But one day, facing the prospect of total destruction during the tribulation period, Israel is going to look on him whom they have pierced. the greater son of David, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he will destroy their adversaries, and he will set on the throne of his father David. And God will fulfill this promise he made to David. You see, God doesn't see things like we see them. God has an eternal perspective he sees the end from the beginning you know he exists in the past the present and the future all at the same time his his perspective and his wisdom is far beyond our comprehension comprehension remember the 1 billion trillion stars the psalmist said in psalm 147 verse 4 he telleth the number of the stars he calleth them all by their names could you imagine naming 1 billion trillion stars But he calleth them all by their name. And then verse 5 of that passage, he says this, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. See, God's understanding is infinite. It cannot be measured. You know, we measure things. We have what we call IQ. You know, people like to measure their IQ or brag about their IQ or, or not brag about their IQ, you know, depending on who it is. But, you know, you know, it's a measurement of intelligence. Some of them with high IQs, I think, are about as intelligent as a gorilla. But anyway, I uh, don't think it means much. But, but God's understanding is infinite. That's why Paul would say in Romans, Oh, the depth and riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. If you think you have God all figured out, let me know. I'd like to talk to you. 
You see, God is without compare in his perspective. But he's also, fourthly, without compare in his purpose. So notice in verse 14 of our text in Psalm 89, it says, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Now, when it talks about the habitation of a throne, the word habitation speaks of the foundation or the basis or it's the dwelling place of. And it gives four things here that are the habitation of the throne of God. Justice. Justice is described or defined as what is right, what is just. God is a source of all that is just, all that is right, all that is true. You know, the lawlessness and the increase of criminal activity is greatly increased in our world because we have rejected the law of God. You know, I never thought about this before until we were at Williamsburg this week. Do you realize they didn't have a police force in colonial America? There's no police force. Now, they had local militias. They weren't very often used. Of course, punishment for crime was swift and sure, too. But the point I'm making is, morality, people believed in God and morality because of that. I'm not saying they were all Christians. But see, our criminal element, you know, we have the highest crime rate, I think, in the world. Of course, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't punish criminals. They have no fear of God. But the source of justice, of what is right, is God. It's the word of God. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. Hosea 14.9 says, Who is wise, and he shall understand these things, Prudent, and he shall know him. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. See, the habitation or the dwelling, justice dwells around the throne of God. It's who he is. He's just. He's also judgment. It's also judgment. The word judgment here speaks of a seat of judgment where sentence is passed. And you remember a few weeks ago, we were in Revelation chapter 5, the scene of the throne room in heaven, and the question was asked, who is worthy to open the book? The book of judgment. To judge those that dwell on the earth. Who is qualified Who has met God's standard of righteousness? Who has met God's standard of holiness? Who is worthy? Who can open this book? Of course, worthy is the lamb that was slain. See, God is worthy. God can. He is qualified to render judgment to man. To all men. 
It is his dwelling place. It dwells around, judgment dwells around the throne of God. God is a righteous judge. You know, if you think of a God without judgment, you don't have the God of the Bible. But there's also two other things here mentioned, and the two go together. That is, in the last half of verse 14, mercy and truth shall go, notice this statement, go before thy face. Now, we've we've seen that justice, God is, what he, he is always right. He is right. And he is the one who will, who will sentence or issue judgment upon mankind. But mercy and truth shall go before thy face. So before one meets God's judgment, before one meets God's judgment, they will be offered the mercy of God through the truth of God. No man will be judged that has not first been offered God's mercy through his truth. And of course, that mercy is offered to us when we embrace his truth. When we receive the truth of the word of God. And you know, people, people have said, you know, and this is a question that many times has been answered, what about people that have never heard the gospel? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. That's called natural revelation. And I believe, I think Nicodemus is an example, not Nicodemus, Cornelius is an example of this. A man that will receive natural revelation and say, there is a God that made it, will also receive Special revelation. Cornelius prayed to the God that made the heavens and the earth, though he really didn't know him. And that God that made heaven and earth saw to it that he also received that special revelation, that truth he needed to come to know him as his Lord. Dr. Bill Rice III one time told a story that his father, who was an evangelist, always wanted to preach the gospel to the pygmy tribes of Africa. And so he went to Africa. And he was preaching. They were preaching at this one village of the pygmies. And the witch doctor, who most often is the biggest troublemaker and the, the one who causes people to turn away from the gospel, the witch doctor wants to get saved. He was not too sure about this. But the witch doctor assured him and said this. He said, he said, here's my story. My grandfather was a witch doctor. And my father was a witch doctor. But he said, I look at the stars and say, there has to be a God who made them. And now you came and told me about that God. See, God, before he judges man, offers his mercy through his truth. You know, Psalm 85.10 says, 
mercy and truth are met together. They're met together. And in Christ, we have the mercy of God offered to us by the one who is truth. He is the way, the truth, and life. And so before God will judge us, he offers to us his mercy. You see, this God, who is without compare, desires that we walk, live in the light of his countenance. Notice verse 15. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sign. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy living. You know, blessed is the people. Notice it doesn't say blessed is the people that hear. It says blessed is the people that know. The joyful sound. I believe it's referring to the gospel of hearing the gospel. That's the joyful sound. It is the good news. And it says they will walk in the light of his countenance. They will walk in the light of his smile, of his favor, of his blessing, of his mercy. See, you and I can have a relationship with this God who is without compare. We can walk in the light of his blessing, of his favor. So as we consider this God, who is without compare, it deserves a response from us. Number one, we should fear him. Verse 7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. We ought to fear him. We ought to give him reverence. We ought to love him because he first loved us. He offers to us mercy and truth. We ought to obey him without bargaining. You're too, too often we bargain with God. God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. You're reminded of what Jesus said to Peter when he told Peter how he was going to die. And Peter looks at John and says, what about him? What shall this man do? And Peter, Jesus basically, what he said was, in Byler's revised version is, Peter, that's none of your business. You do what I have commanded you to do. You do what I have asked of you. And let John worry about John. See, we we ought to obey him. And then we should worship him, for he is worthy. In verse 52, the last verse of this chapter, it says this, Blessed be the Lord forevermore. And the word blessed here is, is a word of worship. It really means to kneel before. It's a, an act, a symbol, you will, of our worship before him. Blessed, kneel before the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. So be it and so be it. Or we can say, this is true, this is true. You know, we have a God who is without compare. And we ought to worship him. 
kneel before him. For he is worthy. How is it with you this morning? Do you know this God as your God? Do you have fellowship with him? You know, he is a God that is without compare.